Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. Many of us grew up reading the myths and legends from ancient Greece and Rome. We followed Heracles as he succeeded at one impossible task after another. We cringed when Orpheus turned round at the last moment so Eurydice fled back into the underworld. And we grinned when Odysseus outsmarted the Cyclops Polyphemus. But behind all these heroes were the women, silent players in the stories of their husbands, fathers and brothers. Often rescued or cursed, frequently seduced or raped, these women acted only as accessories to the gods and heroes of the ancient world. Today we have with us Claire North, whose recent novel Ithaca has taken readers on a brand new journey of that fabled land, focusing on Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, who managed to hold at bay 108 suitors while her husband was away for two decades. Claire, thank you for joining us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work, please? Um, thank you for having me. Um, I am Claire North. I am also sometimes Kate Griffin, although not for a while. And in the deep, dark past, I was my real self, which is Catherine Webb. I used to write YA, then I wrote urban fantasy, and now I write pretentious science fiction and fantasy, um, hence the name switches. Um, and the joy of the pretentious science fiction and fantasy is I kind of get to do what I want and therefore have recently been doing a run of kicking the Iliad and the Odyssey while they're down. So it must be confusing when people come up to you at convention and go, hi, Catherine, no, Claire, no, wait. <laughs> I kind of got used to it. There was an embarrassing phase when I didn't spell Claire North correctly. I didn't think it had an I in it. And I was signing books um, when Nazia, the amazing publicist at but kind of turned around and went, have you noticed that you're spelling your name wrong? And I was like, oh, oh, it's, oh, that's a bit embarrassing. Um, but I've got over that. That was a while ago. And now I know how to spell my own name. I think that makes it kind of special though, because those people who have misspelled names, that's like going to be the ultimate, like unique thing because you're not going to have signed it that way since then so you know hold on to those copies <laughs> it is the anti-bob dylan auto pen I, like there's some honor in that at least speaking today as claire north with an eye um i wanted to ask you about greek myths which are still being told and retold today so what do you think is their enduring power for readers and listeners Oof, uh that is a big question um not to wax too macro about it, but I think it's probably fair to say that the Greek myths and then indeed the Roman myths and their retellings um, probably shaped the Western literary canon for millennia and continues to do so. Um, so, for example, as an obvious thing, I mean, A, we all know the stories. They are kind of primal to our upbringing. But some of the tropes that have been passed down through those stories are still woven into our language and our culture. We still talk about, you know, the don't look at the gift horse in the mouth, the Trojan horse, don't accept gifts from Greeks, like all these words and phrases that are just still part of our culture. But also specifically, if you look at, say, kind of the idea of women that have been passed down from the Greek myths, um, particularly around the time of the Odyssey and the Iliad, the period that that's describing, you have kind of the archetype of Helen of Troy, a woman far too beautiful to be safe, or Clytemnestra, a woman who can't handle power because women with power are dangerous, or Penelope, the chaste wife. And you can look at these archetypes and go, well, 
actually they have transmitted into our writing unto today. The image of the powerful woman as a dangerous thing still lives with us today. Scarlet Bloody Witch, for example. Superman never had trouble with his feelings, but women do. Or the image of the beautiful woman who must be hunted and owned is still with us in something like Fifty Shades of Grey. Or the woman of the chaste, the image of the chaste woman who waits is basically every single woman in Charles Dickens. Like The power of these stories are not just that we keep telling them. It's also the influence they've had on thousands of years of how we tell stories about now and to ourselves. Okay. I mean, that was an answer and a half. <laughs> I did warn you it would be macro. I was a bit like, this, this isn't a short one. This isn't, we all got the kids' picture books, but we did. And that's also interesting and important. <laughs> no, but I, I completely agree. And it, it's just one of those things where it's like, yes, yes, I'm nodding along to you as you say this. Yes. Uh, and I don't think I have anything to add to that. Yes. Sorry. I'll hand it back to Charlotte. <laughs> Well, that assumes I have anything to say about this, <laughs> apart from agreeing with Claire. Um, well, actually, what I was going to say is you mentioned masses of women there, but obviously you've chosen to retell one story, which is Penelope. So what made you think, you know what, she's the last for me, that girl is going to have a proper retelling? Um, there's a number of things at play. Firstly, there's actually not that much spoken about Penelope in the texts. Um, when she does appear, it's to cry in a corner and go to her room or be sent to her room because isn't that charming? Um, and that's good. If you are a scribbler, then just enough text for people to have a sense of familiarity, but not so much that people are going to go, oh, you're stepping on something I feel ownership over is basically ideal. Um, so there was a nice void there. Although, sidebar, hats off to Margaret Atwood and the Penelope ad, which I read before I wrote this in Mortal Terror, because you don't want to go anywhere near anything Margaret Atwood has done. Don't don't be that idiot. Um, but yeah, there was, there was generally speaking a gap. Gaps are good. Um, but also, unlike a lot of women in Greece, Penelope presented quite an interesting narrative conundrum in terms of how she uses power or how she doesn't use power. Um, so, for example, the thing that always leaps to my mind is a parallel between Penelope and Elizabeth I of England, because Elizabeth I comes to the throne and everyone's like, great, who are you going to marry? Obviously, women can't rule. That's a terrible idea. Only men can be in charge. But if a woman absolutely has to be in charge, she must marry. But Elizabeth couldn't marry the King of Spain because that meant war with France, couldn't marry the King of Denmark because that meant war with the Catholic world, couldn't marry a Scot because that meant domestic civil war with a Brit, couldn't marry a Brit because that would mean domestic civil war with another Brit. She couldn't marry anyone without there being war, but neither could she say no to anyone because if she says no to them, what's going to stop the King of Spain just going, fine, I'll invade? And the answer is nothing when he eventually worked it out, um, except the weather never crossed the Bay of Biscay in the autumn. Um, and it struck me as a, a really interesting parallel in terms of how, as a woman, you have power, but you also must be seen not to have power, and how you must use that power in a very masculine world where power is seen as being a male thing, but there are still women who have to be in charge. And Penelope seemed like a very interesting hopping off point onto that question of women and power. And thankfully, doesn't have as much primary source material about her as Elizabeth I does. It's interesting what you say about 
women and how they each deal with power. Because obviously in the book, we have um, Electra and Clytemnestra who also deal with power in a massively different way. So you've got Penelope quietly there, just, you know, gently sauntering along and going, yes, sir, no, sir, of course not. And like you say, saying not, not saying yes or no to anyone. And then you've got like Clytemnestra going, well, I'm going to stab my husband in the throat. And quite, quite right, because he's horrible. But, you know, you've got all these different women that you kind of touch on as you go around and how they deal with power. Yeah, that's one of the great advantages of looking at this period, because arguably after this point, women with power start to vanish from our stories. There's an interesting, you can look at it and kind of go, this is an interesting turning point in the way we tell stories of a move away from figures like Medea to figures like Helen of Troy, to women not even counting in the story. So there's an interesting period where you can look at almost the last gasps of female power in the story. And the way women use it is, I think, really interesting how that's reflected in the story. Clytemnestra has power and shows it and uses it and is punished for it and must be punished for it. It's almost divinely ordained that because she wielded power in her husband's absence and had the temerity to stand up for herself, she must be killed. Um, Helen arguably also had power, but it's a power of sexuality, of beauty. That famous trope of women are far too beautiful, men can't control themselves, so let's lock up the women. Um, And Electra's power is also arguably that thing of citing male power as the source of her authority, which Penelope does too. And which again, I hate to say it, is also kind of still a bit of a trope in the 21st century society. I mean, I sort of feel like all of us at some point or other have felt ourselves tempted to turn around to the plumber and go, yeah, no, my boyfriend said did this. And, and you know, lean on male authority just to get something done. And so it's very different ways of trying to exercise power with very different consequences for each woman. I have to say that when I get people come around the door cold calling and like, oh, who does your gas? I'm like, gosh, you know, I don't know. My husband deals with all that. Is he around? No, I'm sorry. When will he be back? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) It's very helpful sometimes. Isn't it shocking that it's still helpful in this day and age? I'm a lighting technician. I deal with electricity and stuff like that all the time. I'm trained in technical theatre and even I still find it easier to be a bit like, oh, my partner. Uh, it's got a spanner. It's like, ah, I hate myself when I do it. But I'm also like, it's a Thursday afternoon and I'm cold and I'm not sure I want to fight the patriarchy right now. I just want a cup of tea. I think we need that on a T-shirt. It's Thursday afternoon, it's cold and I don't want to fight the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that Penelope's story doesn't have as many sources as, say, Elizabeth I. So it kind of gives you a bit more freedom So, I mean, what did you like look at and say, okay, well, this is kind of gospel as it were around Penelope stories, or this is like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to change this. I can play with this and people aren't going to get pissed at me. Um, (laughs) Or did you just not care? And and what did you want to change and why? Uh, That is a big question of many parts. Um, (laughs) Let's see if I can break it down to bits in my head. Um, I have very little loyalty to the original classic text, which I know sounds shocking and bad, but fundamentally I am writing for a 21st century audience. And I have more loyalty actually to what the 21st century audience thinks it knows about that time. Because when you're going to take an old story that everyone feels they know and you're going to muck around with it, you 
want to do it with enough respect that people aren't constantly being shaken through that fourth wall with a cry of, don't like it. You want to kind of still be crafty and confident in your use of it. Um, But that said, there's a lot of historical stuff from that time, a lot of archaeological stuff from that time that does feel a bit fourth wall breaking. For example, there's quite strong evidence that coinage hasn't happened yet and writing is barely kicking off in that era. Um, And these are things that fundamentally change everything about a society to a 21st century audience. And so when picking and choosing what you're going to use and what you're going to discard, I think it's more about what is it you are attempting to communicate today and now rather than paying homage to the ancient text. Um, I'm also very aware that Homer was singing that song many, many, many centuries after the time period he claims to be talking about. And that song has been sung many times by many people and oral history is famous for not really keeping the details straight. So again, I don't feel there is a sacred text per se here to be worried about. There is a poem sung centuries after the events for which there is mixed archaeological evidence about people who, for the most part, probably didn't exist. Some might have, but not in that form. Um, About a war of questionable veracity. Um, And the poets are always singing for a master. They're always singing for whoever's going to pay them. So, for example, as well as looking at the Odyssey and the Iliad, I was looking at the Oresteia, which is very much a text written with a sideline tangent of going, hey, Athens, Athens is great, isn't it? Yeah, we're the inventors of trial by jury. We're we're really awesome here in Athens. Every poem had an objective in the time in which it was sung, just as every single book that is written today is a reflection of the time in which it was written. Um, And so it's important to know enough and to be immersed enough that you're not going to cause that sense of jarring, uncanny ugh to your readers and to respect what it is you're trying to do and not screw it up, basically. But ruthless orthodoxy was never my intention. I mean, I think that's good. Uh, as you say, like just like paying homage to this, you know, great old text, because at the end of the day, that exists. Like that already exists. If someone really wants to read that story, it's there. They can read it. Yeah. You have to kind of tell your own thing and, and bring it into now. Yeah. Um, it's also part of a very long tradition of stories written by men, bless, um, which in which women are seen entirely through a male gaze. They are objects to be owned. Um, they are missing wives to be recovered. They are narratively sometimes a bit relevant as an inciting incident or as someone who gets fridged. But they are not, these stories have never been spoken by women for women looking at women from the point of view of women, if that makes sense. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's quite interesting and quite important to look at texts that have been so fundamental to the Western literary canon and go, but what if a woman wrote this? Speaking of which, what <laughs> a female narrator you have in Hera. Uh, so I was like, when I started it, I was like, good grief. I, th- I thought this was about Penelope. Who on earth is talking? And when you finally named her, I was like, oh, wow. So I wanted to know what prompted you to choose Hera as the main viewpoint character rather than Penelope herself or, you know, one of Penelope's maids or something that you might be feel a bit more traditional. I was really excited that Hera got centre stage and I want to know what prompted you. 
firstly, thank you. I am beaming. Um, but also um, a number of things. Um, firstly, kind of that thing I already met, touched on about how after this, women don't really feature that much in the canon. They certainly don't feature as powerful figures. I think is also quite relevant to why here is telling the story. Archaeologically speaking, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that Greece, like most of the world, started out in prehistory worshipping primal earth goddess figures, the mother goddess, the all-powerful mother earth. And over time, those figures were altered into, in the case of Hera, a dowdy, snarky, put-upon wife. And in many ways, it's the storytelling that does that. It's the, the evolution of stories from women as powerful goddesses, as, as these great figures of strength, to women as Charles Dickens' women waiting all day for their men to come home. And Hera is, I think, a really interesting example of this, an interesting example of someone who was transformed, archaeologically speaking, from power to just an adjunct to Zeus. Um, and it makes sense, therefore, for I think for her to be telling this story because she's telling the story of the last three queens of Greece. And after this, the women will be diminished in the record and they will be diminished in the storytelling. Um, so she felt like the right person to capture that sense of changing power and of grief and of the story being pulled away from her. Um, she's also a lot of fun. She's got a lot of fun and she's got a lot of time for Clytemnestra um, and was turned out a joy to write in a very snarky way. I think it was wonderful because I grew up, these were some of the first books I read were the myths and, and legends books. And I always felt really sorry for Hero because all she is in all the books I've ever read was just jealousy personified. And I'm like, that's not the point. What, why hasn't she got her own story where she triumphs? It's always, oh yeah, and then Hera was really pissed off that Zeus turned into a swan and you know, and, and raped someone and Hera was really pissed off with that and the other. And there was also the fact that Hera never sympathised. It was always like, well, it's clearly the woman's fault. I'm like, it's not. What kind of a message are you sending here? And I was just so pleased to see her front and centre and see one of the most neglected characters of the myth to like stand up and go, no, screw you all. But I also love the way, sorry, fangirling a bit here. I also really love the way that you had her always looking over her shoulder for Zeus. So she's this incredibly powerful character, but she's like, I have to be careful what I do because if the men spot me, they'll slam down and go, oh, you've got to go and do this ritual over here. You need to go and do this blessing and they'll just squirrel her out the way and keep her out the way because it's men's business and you're not allowed to deal with men. And then she talks to Athena and Athena's sort of like, yeah, girl power, but also like, yeah, I also really hate you. <laughs> it was just, like you say, it was such a modern interpretation of the goddesses for the book. Thank you. Um, yeah, Hera and Penelope both spend all of their time looking over their shoulder in case a, men's, a man spots them doing anything of any power whatsoever, um, which again was about that thing of how female power manifests. It's a trope, I think, in the 21st century that every female prime minister kind of becomes more masculine in how they present themselves. The shoulder pads come out, the chest goes back, the chin goes out. If you present yourself as powerful and feminine, you immediately get into trouble. Uh, for example, the Prime Minister of Finland went to a party and it was international news. How dare a woman go to a party when she's the Prime Minister? Whereas our Prime Minister went to a party while breaking the law illegally under the worst pandemic we have seen for decades and decades and decades. And people were a bit like, oh, but let him off. 
the way that power is masculinized or feminized and how that manifests, I think is really, really interesting. And Hera was a nice way of kind of poking at that and in many ways poking at the hypocrisy of it. I think you mentioned earlier also like this kind of idea of it's fine for women to have power as long as the men either don't realize it or like we just manipulate them in a way that they think that they have the power or they, you know, like make them think it was their idea, <laughs> but it's really our idea. Uh, and, and I feel that that is, yeah, it's just something that it's sad because in a way it makes women into this kind of, um, you know, become manipulative where guilting people or we're tricking people or things like that. And it's like, well, okay, but if that is the only way that we are allowed or that we we are capable of doing it because every kind of time that we try to wield power out in the open, we get shut down. So we have to use tricks. We have to manipulate. We have to, you know, shepherd them like excellent collie dogs, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because without that we get nothing. Yeah. It's a toxic dumpster fire. Patriarchy, ruining everything for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Precisely. So you're very precise and un often unflattering when you describe the people of the ancient world. I mean, was this how you imagined a goddess describing humanity? Or were you trying to make a point about the ancient world? I mean, what was behind that choice? I think it was how I pictured Hera describing things. For all that, I had a lot of fun writing her. She has been through the ringer. She is full of rage and grief and despair and has very little optimism left in her whatsoever. Um, and I couldn't imagine that being a fluffy, lovey voice to hang out with. If it's any consolation, book two is narrated by Aphrodite. And because I'm not very good at the voice of the goddess of love and desire, um, I've used the voice of Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. Um, and that makes the entire book a non-stop hug. It's wall to wall. Babe, did you row here yourself? Did someone else oil your biceps or is it all your own work? So there is a dramatic voice shift in book two. Just wanted to pick up on you saying about like Hera, you know, being, being angry and it, I think it's that's that's a really interesting point because in a lot of books, in a lot of media, we still don't see or we're not allowed to see women's rage. And I think it's really important. It's like women that we see depicted just kind of tend to either, you know, go in on themselves, you know, they just despair or they get rage and therefore they're a monster. And we never see any other kind of depiction of a woman who has rage, who has hundreds of reasons, totally legitimate to be angry. <laughs> and they never really get to, to speak their piece. Yeah, I think there is a potential problem, I hate to say it, with retellings um, in that sometimes I think we cushion what could be the pure rage of feminism um, behind the comforting wall of, well, this was thousands of years ago, or it's on another world. The thing that always leaps to mind when I think about this, and it's not a book, but it's going to be very pop culture, is at roughly the same time, House of the Dragon was released 
and also She-Hulk. And everyone looked at House of the Dragon and said, oh my God, women are suffering and dying in childbirth. It's so progressive and feminist and congratulated themselves on the back for having done something about the women experience. She-Hulk was released and it was about living in the 21st century where it's wall-to-wall microaggressions against the mere act of being a woman and how trying to speak up immediately gets you punished and being angry is the norm. And it got review bombed for being too woke. And I think there's a really interesting thing happening in our books, in our popular culture right now, where even today we're still quite shy and tiptoey around anger. It still causes that immediate flinch in all sorts of people. And it's not just feminism. I think when Black Lives Matter was kind of really rocking the streets of London, everyone would turn around saying, oh, yes, of course, we completely agree that racism is bad. But do people have to be loud about it? And there's a real hypocrisy, I think, in our society about, yes, going, oh, we believe in feminism and and we believe in equality and we believe in all of these things, but not wanting to be made uncomfortable by it. Whilst I love that tangent into rage, which is always a good thing to talk about when it comes to women, because like you say, not enough female rage in literature and film and everything. But I noticed that you said that book two is narrated by Aphrodite. So we've kind of gone from female rage to, as you described it, one big female hug. So what made you want to do the switch? And and I say this, I'm trying not to sound disappointed because I was like, I wanted to see more of Hera. So what made you want to switch? Um, if there's any comfort, there's still a lot of anger and rage. Um, there's a lot of consequences from book one that directly follow into book two in bad and destructive ways. Um, I wanted to switch for two reasons. Firstly, Helen is a big part of book two. And I think, again, that's a really interesting aspect of female power that is not necessarily that often explored. Um, The idea, there is this pervasive toxic idea in society, isn't there, that if you're beautiful and sexual and you enjoy sexuality and you enjoy having nice hair and nails, you're a bimbo, this kind of poisonous word of being a bimbo, and you can't therefore be worthwhile. To be sexual is to therefore be at once coveted and also inferior and invalidated. You can't really win. And I thought that was actually very interesting to have a poke at because Aphrodite is very much treated that way. She's pure sexuality and therefore can't possibly have a thought in her head. And that's such a toxic and pervasive cliche through all of our writing, through all of literature and through a lot of culture, that that to be sexual is to be almost childish, that, that a true woman must, like Penelope, only ever be sexual for her husband. Like these, these toxic ideas, it seemed worth exploring that from that perspective. Um so yeah, there's still there's still plenty of rage. Don't you worry. It's just it's rage that will be incredibly angry while smiling beautifully at you going, "Oh babe, did you say that mean thing to me?" Rage and hugs, I like it. But it also begs the question because book 2 is now on pre-order for release next year. So who narrates book 3? Are we allowed to know? Uh book 3 is narrated by Athena. Um and yes. The- deals with the dumpster fire that is what happens if slash when Odysseus does indeed return. 
Oh, I like the if slash when, because that was going to be my question, but I'll come I'll come on to that later. Yes, Athena, again, another one of my um, favorite goddesses, but almost the opposite to Aphrodite in that she was always desexualized and she was always like, you know, in armor and and not particularly pretty and very upright and prim. And I'm like, oh, can't she just be a bit feminine at the same time? There's a problem with the Greek gods and I can see why they're like that. But it can be so frustrating reading them from a modern perspective to look at them and go, my God, you're so two-dimensional. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting about both Athena and to a certain extent Artemis, the kind of virgin gods, is that in many ways virginity is the shield. It's the shield almost more than the sword and the spear. There is a deep-seated cultural horror about the idea of, oh, you you raped a virgin, that's an unforgivable sin. Whereas if you're Aphrodite, it's fair game because clearly this is a sexual woman, so it doesn't matter what you do to her. Being virginal is probably the single greatest protection these two goddesses have against being assaulted by their kin. And so actually, it's very possible to imagine a whole world of sexuality, a whole world of desire beneath their very kind of cold outward exteriors. But the exterior is the protection. At the other end of the idea of, oh, you know, the bimbo and, and the slut, kind of all these words used to describe sexual women and Aphrodite in particular, at the other end, there's this other poisonous word in society, which is frigid. But it doesn't acknowledge the fact that both of these things, kind of being sexually outgoing and also being sexually incredibly tightly contained, can be defences and can be shields and can be things that women have used to survive. Um, and so certainly my take on Athena is very much that she has to be so defeminized because it's the only way she is safe and the only way she's taken seriously. Now that you say that, I remember a sentence in the book where you say something like, um, Athena can't possibly look at all sexual because then Zeus, her father, will take a look at her and go, oh, sexy. And then that's very, very bad. And I remember reading that and being horribly chilled by it, just like, oh, that's, that's really horrible. I mean, I hate to say it, Zeus's first act on seeing Athena in some of the myths was to try and rape her. So he's got form and she has reasons. I find it really interesting you're talking about how they're sort of wearing their virginity as a kind of armour. Um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, it's it interesting. Recently, I went to the Museum of Torture uh, in Lucca in Tuscany, and it, it was really interesting. They had a, a big sort of display on chastity belts, which we think of, you know, the I don't know if anybody else is a Robin Hood Men in Tights fan, but, you know, I love it. Uh, and <laughs> locksmith. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and it's always kind of presented as like something that men did to women so that they couldn't, you know, I don't know, lose their virginity and no one could break in or so on and so forth. Um, but it, it's often seen as kind of a, a male way to exert dominance over a woman you know people you know, stories about men putting their women in chastity belts while they were away and things like that but when you actually look at the ancient a lot of these ancient devices they're more as the torture museum you might guess more like quite horrifying devices but specifically anti-rape devices in that 
it wasn't like underpants so that nobody could get in. It was literally like claws and horrible things so that if you tried to rape someone where she was trying to go about her business, your knob would get really, really uh, like in a bad way. It's a bad day. <laughs> so um, I was just thinking because that is is kind of a very different story about this kind of de- ancient device that did exist, but it's not the kind of the one that we know of. The idea that women were wearing literally wearing armor underneath their dresses so that people wouldn't be able to rape them, which is horrendous, but is, is so like, it makes so much sense when you have these stories, you know, when Zeus might look at his daughter and go, Ooh, you're hot. I'm going to fuck you. So, and, and it's just weird how this story has also now become like, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that the chastity belts were also used as a way to control women in other forms. But a big, big part of that story was about having to protect themselves from the men. And I feel like that story has been lost. I don't really know where I was going with that, but it just made me think of like when I was reading about this in the museum and, and yeah, the, the parallels there just interested me. I think it's a really interesting summary of so much of of kind of female sexual presentation to be honest throughout history and throughout literature the question with the chastity belt is always who has the key if it's the man with the key we have a problem if it's a woman with the key it's not if a woman wishes to be sexually outgoing and it's her choice amazing if she wishes to be not sexually outgoing it's her choice amazing but if her choice is determined by a cultural pressure then and that cultural pressure is created by a patriarchy, then you got problems. After talking about chastity belts and violation and all those kind of torturous things, let's take a look at the more positive role models that you have in Ithaca. And there are a couple of men that you definitely have a soft spot for. So one is the Egyptian suitor, who I think is Kenemon. Is that, Mm -hmm. am I saying it right? Um, because he is polite, he's genuine, he's thoughtful, and he's just wonderful. And he's a real marked contrast to the other suitors. And the other one is old, again, am I saying this right? Medon? I know how to type it. I don't know how to say it. I'm sorry. There we are. Me- Me- Medon, Med- I think it's Medon rather than Medon because there's only one D. But the old guy, anyway, who's always, you know, sort of teasing Penelope quite gently. And I wondered what it was about those characters in particular that made you go, yeah, they're all right. Yeah, I quite like them. And, you know, why was them? Um, are they actually real people? Uh, sorry, I say real people, I should have quotes. Are they mentioned in the Odyssey or are they your complete creations? Um, there is there is a Medon in the Odyssey. I sort of smashed him together from kind of an old advisor who was called Mentor. Um, mentor? Mentor? Anyway, th- there was a smashed together advisor and a herald. Um Kenemon is not in the Odyssey. Um, all the suitors in the Odyssey who are named are, generally speaking, pretty disgusting. But also they have a fairly clear canonical ending, minor spoiler. Um, and I wanted to slightly put a question mark over how much that was going to be stuck to. Um, so I was interested in putting in essentially people who have not internalized the patriarchy or if they ever did they've got over themselves um so for example medon is a lovely old counselor um and he has no interest in the idea that women 
shouldn't wield power. Um, it's just not really occurred to him to, as a problem. And he has no real interest in the kind of political power games of men vying for petty increases in status. He just wants the kingdom to be run well and to be safe and has recognised that Penelope is a good person to do that. Um, and so he's just he's just a straight up human. He's just a lovely, lovely human trying to do his best in a bad world. Um, the problem with uh, this is going to be another statement that's quite big. The problem with the patriarchy, but particularly as relates to kind of the Odyssey and these texts, I think is best actually exemplified in characters like Telemachus, who grew up without a father in his life. Odysseus was gone before Telemachus was really old enough to crawl. Um, but he's been raised on all these stories of what men should be. All these heroic ballads of what a real man is, and a real man is strapping and and hides his feelings and is bold and brave and, and impossible ideals of masculinity. And I think that's what makes the suitors toxic as well. They're all young men raised without father figures. And so all they have is this story transmitted to them of what a man should be. And the story was always going to be poison and is poison to this day in the 21st century. People like Kenemon and Medan are able to be, frankly, just decent humans because they haven't been fed that story. They have transcended that story and can just be all-round nice dudes. I hadn't thought of it like that because obviously in many books, when people get old, they're either you know, full of wisdom or really old and dodgy and not to be used at all. But you do make a whole point of how there is a whole generation missing in Ithaca. And I hadn't thought that, of course, Medon is of a generation where he would have seen all of this before and he would have known Odysseus before he had all the myths about him and all the songs, which of course Telemachus doesn't. That's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought. He is the only one of his generation. Yeah. The only other person of the generation still on the island, of course, is Laertes. And Laertes was an Argonaut, so he knows how powerful the stories are. He knows what lies they can be. He was there with Jason and the Golden Fleece and absolutely knows that what the poets say real men are and real heroes are has no resemblance to what it actually is just being ordinary human getting on with your life and i like the fact that at one point he goes and hides in a ditch which is what you don't get enough of in heroic poems i think <laughs> i must admit i developed quite a soft spot for Laertes over the course of the books <laughs> <laughs> okay just bringing it back around to women for one final question in the book, you have Penelope secretly raising an army of women. And I really like this idea. And I wanted to know if it was pure invention or whether you found a hint of this in the stories or in the history. And as a sort of an addendum to that, did this actually happen? Because I know that there's archaeological evidence of Troy. Is there archaeological evidence that, you know, Decius's palace was once there and maybe ruled by a woman? Or is it all complete fiction? Um, let's do the bad news first. There is very limited archaeological evidence for much to do with Odysseus and Ithaca. Um, not least because if you look at Ithaca geographically, nothing about the Odyssey makes much sense. And certainly Ithaca as an island is a tiny little rock next to the much more pleasant island of Cephalonia. There's a lot of evidence for Western kingdoms, which is what you'd assume Odysseus would have been running. Um, but there's very limited evidence for Odysseus as an interesting dude off a powerful Ithacan state, if that makes sense. There's also, I don't think that I've come across much evidence for women fighting during the Mycenaean period in Greece. There is evidence of women fighting for the Scythians, 
at roughly the same period. Um, and obviously in the Iliad, there's not exactly Amazons, but they're, they're, let's call them Amazons for now. There are kind of, there's Penthesilia, there are the Amazon warriors fighting on the side of Troy, which archaeologically you would probably peg as Scythians. Um, so certainly there is some history of women fighting, question mark over Greece, question mark, um, more likely to be further east. Um, in terms of the army of women, um, I teach women self-defense. Um, and so I am extremely realistic about the fact that men are physically stronger and are more likely to be able to punch you into submission if it's just fist against fist. But I'm also very aware that you don't need to be strong to use a knife. Um, and so when looking at the question of how are you going to defend your kingdom when all the men are missing presumed dead, it made a lot of sense to sit down and approach this from basically a guerrilla tactics point of view. Um, how do you utilize things that women would be good at and tools that women could use while also pretending that this axe they're carrying, it's just for chopping wood. Um, so it was a fun game of what is intellectually plausible within the tactical remits of this time, if that makes sense. I did very much like the bit where they all go to have the, the feast, of Di uh, feast of Artemis and it's like, me carrying this fish knife? No, I just I forgot to put it down at the table before I left. No, no, no. It, it's just I don't mean to use it. Obviously, I'm a woman. I just picked it up accidentally. I thought that was a really nice touch. I like that. Thank you. I mean, obviously, there is the cult of Artemis. Like clearly, there is a precedent for Greek huntresses, um, and that is, I think, of archaeological significance in and of itself. Um, we forget how much labour women did throughout the years. We forget how much gathering of firework wood and fetching of water and doing the fishing and potentially hunting women had to do down the millennia, um, particularly when their men are at war. So we do forget the sheer amount of labour and strength that went into just surviving. That sounds like an excellent point to end on. And I want to say from Team Hera, thank you very much for coming and speaking to us and for writing an excellent book about Ithaca. It's been absolutely a pleasure to have you on, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Team hero. Okay. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.